Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here today, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world and whenever you are watching this, we're thrilled you're here. Feel free to jump into the comments and let us know that you're with us today. We'd love to say hi and um, uh, just know that you're here. So today is kind of a day of endings. Um, today is represents sort of the end of July as far as Sundays go. It represents the end of a series. This is a series uh, where we've been reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. It started, I think, back in March, and we hit pause and did a series on the pandemic, and then we jumped back into it. And so it's been quite a long time coming as we've been preparing to wrap this up, at least for now. We'll probably pick it up in the years to come. Uh, and today is also about the end. So today we're talking about the end times. Uh, before we jump into that, though, I just wanted to let you know that we are, uh, that I created this playlist. I just thought it would be fun at some point to create a, a playlist for a sermon. And this, talking about the end uh, of everything, seems to be like the funnest one to pick. So um, we'll be sharing out later today, probably, uh, links to Spotify and Apple Music, playlist, a playlist that I've created that'll just be fun. Uh, to, to listen to as you go through, or maybe fun if that's your kind of fun, uh, that we'll go through throughout this week. So today I want to talk about the end times, and I've really been looking forward to this because for me and my religious upbringing, the end times were the central focus. Now, if you would have asked us, we would have talked about salvation, and we would have affirmed that salvation was the central part of why we gathered and why we did what we did. But the reality is, if you just look at the amount of focus and the amount of energy and the amount of conversation, it was all focused on the end times. It was focused on the rapture and the second coming of Jesus and this period of time we believed would be between the two called the Great Tribulation, which was this period of suffering. Um, to be honest, much of my anxiety as, as a child, as a kid, and the resulting difficulty of falling asleep that I still deal with as an adult, even though I have better theology, um, most of that anxiety and that insomnia as a kid was created by the uncertainty and the uncertainty of two specific things. One was the uncertainty of salvation because we believed growing up in a free will Baptist context before we became the liberal Southern Baptist that we became, we believed that salvation could be lost and it seemed like it could be lost as easy as today I lose my car keys or a pair of sunglasses. So that was the one end. It was, you never really knew where you stood with God. And then the other thing was the unpredictability of the rapture, because after all, we knew that every biblical biblical prophecy had been fulfilled so that at any moment the clouds could part and Jesus would come back and the faithful would be sort of hoovered up into the, the sky to meet Jesus. See, the problem for me was there seemed to be no good options. If I died in sort of a backslidden state, that would mean an eternity of torment at hell, which at 11 years old, even then I was convinced was a problem, was terrifying and a problem. But I also had to worry about Jesus coming back. And if I missed out, like I would be in big trouble. But the other part of that was, what if I went? The Jesus that I knew as a kid did not feel safe. He felt angry and vindictive, the kind of qualities you don't want in a forever kind of situation. And then there was the whole idea of what heaven would be like, which I was kind of just told as a kid would be an eternal, unending church service. Which you have to understand, as a kid, I felt like sometimes church was just a thing I survived without getting in trouble. So I didn't like the idea of turning church and, and like taking it to an energizer bunny sort of level that it just keeps going on and on and on and on. 
if there's one story I could share that actually captures sort of my fear and anxiety level I live with as a kid, it would, it would have been probably around the time I was 10 years old. My, my pop, who is our pastor, my pop had had an open heart surgery, his second, and he'd had so many complications. And so my mom and my grandma were at the hospital. And so that left me at home. Um, with, it left me when my dad was at work. He was worked on the railroad. When, I, when he was at work, I would be with fa- uh, some family, some cousins. But when he was home, I would, I would be with him. And there was this one particular day when I was with my dad. And he went outside to take the trash out. I'm around 10 years old. And he's, he's gone for a really, really long time. Like He was gone for a long time. So eventually I started to get worried and I went outside and I stepped out on the porch and I saw the trash bag sitting in the yard and my dad is nowhere to be seen. And I panicked immediately. This is exactly what I'd been warned about my entire 11 year old life. I had been left behind. So I ran into the yard and I'm screaming at the sky, something like, come back, take me with you. It turns out my dad went to check on my great grandmother who lived right next door to us and He eventually came back and I realized that I hadn't been left behind, that everything was okay. Um, The good news is that better theology, time, and a good therapist work wonders and are super helpful. I I tell you that to say that this discussion about the end times is really familiar to me. And it's a discussion I think that has actually been very misunderstood throughout Christian history. It's grounded in a disjointed, non-contextual reading of the Bible that is sort of cobbled together ransom note style and is used to create an end times roadmap. And it's actually a very terrible way to read the Bible because it ignores things that are central, like context, and it ignores the real issues that these texts were written to speak to and to address. And more than that, prophecy, the word prophecy, isn't actually about predicting the future. Prophecy in the Bible is something a prophet does, and a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. They, they have a message burning in their bones to speak on behalf of the divine. And this message was for a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place, but it also contained with it a warning, which if unheeded, they said, would bring a sort of disaster, but not in some distant future after you die or some distant future end time scenario. It was something that would happen very soon. The end they were talking about was at the door. It was going to happen soon. So before we jump into this a little bit more, some vocabulary, the Bible contains different genres of literature. Just like if we were at the library, if that's a thing people still go to, if you go to the library or you go to a video store, if that's a thing people still go to, um, both of those probably clearly date me at this point in my life. Um, There are different kinds of literature in the Bible. So you go to a library and you go through and you find a book of poetry and you find a book of history and you find a science book and you find some nonfiction, you find some fiction. There are all sorts of different things in the library. And when you think about this, if you go into a a video store, if you watch movies on Vudu or Amazon Prime or wherever you find movies today, you go into that and you're looking for a movie and you, you see one movie and it's sort of a romantic comedy. You see another movie and it is a drama and you see an action movie and you see a, a comedy or you see some, some sort of animated kid movie, right? Like there are all these different options. And so when you watch a movie and you see Bruce Willis jump a motorcycle into a helicopter, you know immediately that you are in the action genre, that this is exactly what you're supposed to expect, right? Like if you were watching a musical or a drama or romantic comedy, you would go into the, the experience having some expectations about what it should be like. The reality is the Bible has genres, right? There's poetry and there's parable and there's everything in between. 
And so when we come to the literature in the Bible that is used to talk about the end of time, it's known as apocalypse. In Greek, it's the word apocalypsis. And it actually means revelation, which there's a book of the Bible called that, and it actually is in Greek, apocalypsis, revelation. But the word revelation doesn't mean necessarily, what it means is an unveiling. In the Bible, the genre, the apocalyptic genre, deals with what we call the end times. There are two clear examples of this in the Bible. The first is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12. Daniel was the last book to be written of the Hebrew scriptures. It was written um, in what people today call the intertestamental period, um, but, it, but it, was, so it was a late text. And then the book of Revelation, the apocalypse in the New Testament. But the apocalyptic literature is not about the end of the world. It's about a pulling back of the curtain to show what's really happening. This literature is political in nature. It deals with the suffering of the faithful at the hands of an unjust empire. In the book of Daniel, it's talking about um, the persecution of uh, Jews under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which is the era that brought about Hanukkah. In the book of Revelation, it's talking about persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. So some of the suffering of the faithful at the hands of the empire and the hope that, that, that actually, even though it seems like the empire is winning and the faithful are suffering, that God in the end will judge the empire, will find in the favor of the oppressed and will bring about justice. So when you hear apocalypse in connection with the Bible, here's something like, it may seem this way now, but if you pull back the curtain and you see what's really going on, there's something else happening and that God is still on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. These texts, apocalyptic texts, Daniel, Revelation, and others. Uh, there's actually a, a, also a text in uh, the Gospels. It, it was a, the first sort of iteration of it was in Mark, the Gospel, Mark chapter 13. It was, it's called in Mark the Little Apocalypse, uh, which we'll talk about maybe in a bit. These texts contain a lot of, for us in the 21st, 20th century, 21st century, bizarre images and coded language that would have made a lot more sense to the people they were written to. It was about their present and near future, and it was about our past. So hold on to that. We'll come back to it. Second, I just want to say this. The Bible does not predict the end of the world. Remember that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament tradition, there is no concept of forever or an afterlife. That sort of happened after. In the book of Daniel, there's a mention, but that's a late text. So in most of the Hebrew scriptures, the, the idea of an afterlife doesn't exist. There is no sort of concept of forever. Um, even when you see Psalms that say, give thanks to the Lord for she is good, her love endures forever. It's not forever in our sense. It's sort of like just in the age and the age to come. And, and, and the Hebrew prophets also talk about a day of the Lord, which was a day of judgment that they believe was going to happen. But it wasn't something that happened at the end of history. It was something that was going to happen in history. It wasn't that the world would end in the sense of all life ceasing and everything ending but that a new age was coming, that a new age would be ushered in. There are two terms in Hebrew to describe this. There is olam haza, which means this world. So there's this world. And then there's olam haba, which means the world to come. So even in the gospels, when there's conversation about the world and the world, to, like when they're talking about what's next, they're not talking about some sort of disembodied afterlife. And they're not talking about some end of the world scenario. They're saying, there's this world and how this world is and functions, but there's another world coming, another reality, another way of being, another way of relating, another way of existing that is being ushered in. Jesus called this the kingdom 
of God. Now, the prophets did not agree on what this would be like. They agreed that injustice and violence, especially injustice and violence that was being perpetrated by the religious aristocracy would be dealt with. But they had different visions of what it would mean. And here's what I mean. In the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, there's this image of the, the, the Babylonian empire coming to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And Babylon is, in this context, seen as an instrument of judgment. So for Joel, the day of the Lord, when Joel describes the day of the Lord, he describes it as darkness and not light. When he gives you images for the day of the Lord, it's the sun and moon darkened and the stars stop shining. There's violence and suffering. And Joel actually says to people, beat your plowshares into swords. And maybe you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the way we typically hear that. You're right. Because in Isaiah, what Isaiah says in chapter 2 is that someday God will bring healing and a cessation of conflict to all nations, and the swords will be beaten into plowshares. Two different prophets who have two different visions for what this will be like. Then you have Isaiah later in chapter 11 talks about this sort of the Davidic king, who would be the, also known as the Messiah, who would bring about a universal embrace of the divine. And it wasn't just this sort of... Um, territorial or exclusive thing. It was actually something that was happening in the whole world. What the prophets do is they give their vision that they feel inspired to give, but it's their vision of where things are going to go. There are options for how things go. In the New Testament, there are texts that are often taken to be about our future, but they aren't. They're actually texts about the future for the people who wrote them, but they're in our past. And in some cases, they're about maybe the recent past uh, that people experience. And here's an example. I mentioned Mark 13, the little apocalypse. It's about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem during the Jewish revolt of 70 CE. And when Jesus, essentially Jesus, his disciples are walking along and they were talking about the temple. And Jesus says, you know, look, this whole thing's coming down and there are going to be people claiming to be the Messiah. And there's going to be war and rumors of war. And there are going to be people turning on each other. And it's going to be very, very painful. And it happened. And the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. Some people dated it in the late 60s, some in the early 70s. What that means is the Gospel of Mark was written. The first sort of narrative account of the life of Jesus was written either just before or just after the world ended. Because for them, in 70, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and raised the temple, the world ended. The collapse of the temple was the collapse of life as it had been known, not only for the Jews, but for the early Christians who were still going to temple and still participating just through the lens of something different they'd experienced in Jesus. Imagine sort of a 9-11, but much larger that incorporated politics, religion, the economy, and the loss of daily life as people knew it. And the fact that this was part of the sort of the Jesus um, narrative, it, it goes throughout the Gospels. The, the fact that Jesus was warning his followers against something, that there are two paths we can take. We can take the path of violent resistance to Rome, and if we do that, we're going to have a certain experience, or we can take the path of nonviolent resistance, and it will still be difficult. Jesus still got crucified. It was still difficult, but maybe it would bring, maybe nonviolence that was committed not only to freeing the oppressed, but transforming the oppressor. Maybe that could be different. And actually, in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Luke tells the story this way. As Jesus came, in Luke 19, as Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, if only you knew on this of all days the thing 
things that would lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build their fortifications around you, encircle you, and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. Here's what Luke is saying. Jesus was right. Jesus was right that we would never be able to kill our way to peace. Jesus was right that we would never, and we would say in our context, bomb our way to peace. That violence begets violence. That if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And, and when the first Christians are talking about the ends, and, and Mark 13 and the, the similar passages, parallel passages from other gospels, when Jesus is talking about the end that is coming soon, he's not talking about the end of time. He's not talking about two, three, four, five, a thousand, a billion years in the future. He's talking about something very soon. I mean, the reality is that, that people like Paul and other New Testament writers predicted that the end would come within the generation. They said the end would come in their day and in their age. And guess what? They were 100% right. Because the end they were foreseeing was the end of life as they knew it. Not the end of time. The end of the temple. The end of the way of life they had been living their lives in forever. So it's the only way of life they knew. So if we think about this, Jesus lives in the 20s and 30s CE. That's when his sort of time on earth is over. Then you have us in 2020. And in the middle, you have the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. For, was this Jesus? I think this was Jesus. For Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem is in the future. And so when he talks about it, he talks about it in the future. For us, the destruction of Jerusalem is in the past. And the way we've misinterpreted this is we keep talking about it if it's within the future. And in some ways, it's a valid conversation to talk about if we don't learn to live differently in the world, we're in big trouble. We have more, we are more creative than we've ever been with ways to kill each other. We have more nuclear bombs than we can shake a stick. I think I read somewhere it'll take like seven or eight or something to destroy life on the planet. And we have hundreds, right? Like we've perfected the way to end the world. If you go on a little past the gospels, you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the book of unveiling. And the book of Revelation is a work of apocalyptic literature composed to encourage Christians who were suffering under Roman persecution, Roman persecution in the late first century of the common era. So um, around in the 90s, essentially, is when it was written. And it ends with this hope. It, it, it says there's a lot of rough stuff coming. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. But it has this hopeful vision of a new heaven and a new earth that are joined together. There's peace among the nations and the fulfillment of the deepest human longings for belonging and justice. That's sort of the vision. Revelation is saying, this is where we could go. We could, we could bring about a healing and a justice and a belonging for every human being. We could, we could get rid of this sort of religious system that sort of puts God over here and us over here, and that blood has to be shed to get us to meet up, or that we have to do a certain thing, perform a certain way. That we could understand that heaven and earth are united. There's this beautiful vision, and it's an invitation, I think. So what does all this mean? And here's what I'll say about the end times. I don't believe the future is fixed or predetermined. I believe we human beings have a free will, which means we can make choices about who we are and how we live 
And in the end, the divine honors those choices. Nobody's twisting the knobs, pulling the strings, saying the end ha it has to be here. And I know if you go on Wikipedia, you can look up this article about all the people who've predicted the end of the world. And it's been, there's such a list. Um, and this, this is going to go, I think, what is Sunday, the 26th? And I read this week that on July 24th, that there was supposed to be an asteroid that was going to end everything. And I'm pretty sure we're watching this right now, so that didn't happen. Um, but if it did, we'll never see this. So joke's on me. Um, I think God honors our choices. I don't think God has a predetermined way this whole thing ends. Maybe it doesn't have to end. I mean, eventually they say the sun will do a thing. And it's, but like, in the sense we're talking about, maybe it doesn't have to end. What does it mean? It means we are not actors playing out roles on a stage, speaking lines and performing actions and parts that have been crafted for us. We have agency. We get to choose. And our choices matter. If history isn't following a script, then our decisions have an immense potential and importance. Think about life as we're in a choose your own adventure thing here. And so we must choose wisely. And there have been times in American history when American policy and politics, especially when it comes to the Mideast, has been directed by people who believe sort of there is this fatalist end times narrative and we need countries in the Middle East to blow each other up so Jesus will come back and something good can happen, right? That is a terrible way to approach theology. It's a terrible way to approach the Bible and it's a worse way to lead a country as if that the only thing that is inevitable is conflict, bloodshed, and violence. That's not the story we have to choose. We get to choose a different story. Climate change and destroying life as we know it, is, and especially making life hard on the poorest of the poor, isn't something we're, we're fatalistically tied to. We get to choose. Is the end near? We get to decide that. I know the, the, the scientists on the sort of the clock that determines how close we are to midnight, which means how close we are to annihilation, is creeping closer to midnight, but I think we get to choose that. In reality, there is no clock that's winding down to the end. There is no script. It's up to us. Will we engage? Will we do the work that it takes to build a better world? I keep coming back to this. I don't like a lot of St. Augustine, but I do love what Augustine said here. Without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. This doesn't happen without us. The world doesn't get transformed without us. Things don't change without us. Justice isn't done without us. Wounds aren't healed without us. And the world won't be destroyed without us. And nuclear annihilation will not happen without us. And pointless conflict in far-off lands will not happen unless we think it needs to. Why does this matter? If we believe the world is doomed, why would we care about the environment? It's going to be destroyed anyway. If we believe the world is doomed and we're following some sort of predetermined script, we might excuse things that are terrible, terrible stains on God's good world because, well, it's just going to usher in the end times. Well, I know that what that person did is wrong. and I know the policy we're enacting in the Middle East is terrible. And I know that what we're doing to the poor is awful. And I know how we're treating kids at the border is terrible. But, hey, the end is coming, so we really don't need to worry about it. If we believe that violence in the Middle East is a necessary part of God's plan, we might not only turn a blind eye to it, but we might also create postures and policies that seek to bring that into existence, which we have done as a country. If we believe the world is doomed, we might just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back and take us away instead of realizing that Jesus never left. 
His body is here. His body is called to represent him in the world. As St. Teresa of Avila said, that Christ has no body but ours, no hands and feet but ours. Ours are the eyes through which he looks in compassion on the world. If we believe the world is doomed, why care about the hundreds of millions of people living in this world without access to clean and safe drinking water? One in three people in the world doesn't have access to clean drinking water. Why would we care about that if we believe this thing is all set to be nuked and microwaved and done away with? If we spend our short lives, and the book of Ecclesiastes talks about our lives as a mist, as a vapor, and the older I get and the faster time moves, the more I believe that that's the case. Our lives, I mean, the days go slow, but the years go fast. Our lives are a vapor. If we spend those short lives we get waiting to leave this world, we will end up wasting our lives, wasting precious time, and missing out on the opportunity to join God in the repair and healing of the world God loves. We will be so focused on getting out of this world that we miss ushering in the world to come. We'll be so ready to be sort of vacuumed out of this existence that what we've missed is that it is our responsibility and calling to begin to bring in the world that could be. What kind of world do we long to create and inhabit? What kind of world do we want to leave behind for the generations that follow us? I'm also just full disclosure, not a Martin Luther fan. He, he was a rough theologian, but I love this quote. He said, even if I knew tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. We can spend all our time worrying and wondering and thinking about how the world might end. But the reality is there's still trees that need to be planted. So maybe the question we have today is what are our apple trees? That even in the face of a world that is, that right now, it, right now, the world seems to be falling apart. We have a pandemic we have a serious growing problem with white Christian supremacy. We have so many different, and everything in between. It, it is a really rough time on planet Earth. But what are our apple trees to plant? I, I love that idea of thinking the world will go to pieces tomorrow and in hope and in faith, planting an apple tree anyway. Because, you know, apple trees, they take a little while to grow. They take a while to produce fruit. It's not an instantaneous overnight thing. It's a commitment to the process. It's a commitment that no matter how bad the world gets, I'm not going to give up on it. It's a commitment that no matter how dark things seem, I will always seek to bring light into the darkest spaces. Is the world going to end in our lifetime? Is the world going to end anytime soon? The reality is the only people who can answer that question, it's us. It's human beings who have the great the potential to create great life-giving, beautiful things in the world. We also have the potential to blow the potential to blow the whole thing apart. And that decision is on us. How will we engage? How will we enter the world? What are our apple trees that still need to be planted, even in the face of so much uncertainty?